0: and he called his name Jesus.
1: Periodically as a family, we've been watching episodes of The Chosen, and that is that multi-season uh, television series on the life and ministry of Jesus. It tracks stories in the gospel, but it certainly takes freedoms uh, to fill in stories between those gospel accounts, and and one that I'm going to share with you falls into that category. Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her, she was healed by Jesus, was one of the women that began to follow Jesus and his disciples as they moved around. But in this episode, she, she runs away. She disappears. And Jesus nor the disciples know where she's gone. Well, they end up showing where she arrived. And she basically arrived in this kind of dingy uh, basement of a place with a bunch of men gambling and drinking. And in the scene, she gets very drunk. And Peter and Matthew are the ones that are basically sent out to find her. And when they find her, she's throwing up. She's in an awful place. But they bring her back to the place where Jesus and the disciples are staying. And she is telling the disciples, Peter and Matthew, she's telling them that she is convinced that Jesus will not take her back. She said, how how could he? After he had healed her, cast the demons out of her, treated her so kindly, And then she did this. How in the world could he take her back and forgive her? And there's one very poignant scene where she's shoulder slumped, head down, and Jesus is standing before her. And he says, Mary, look at me. And she says with her head down, Jesus, I can't. Now, maybe you've been there before where you have willfully, deliberately, consciously sinned in a very ugly way. And you have doubts that start to rise, that start to creep in. Will Jesus forgive me? Am I really saved? If I was, would I have done something like this? And when these doubts creep in, the question becomes, what starts to push back on those doubts? What starts to remove those doubts and speak against those doubts and bring assurance? And what I will say is if you believe that Jesus saves you from your sins, but you don't really understand why he is able to do that, then over the course of time, you'll be in danger. Your belief will be challenged if you don't understand the why. Why is he able to repeatedly forgive you when you repent or you turn back to him? Verse 21 is the center of this passage. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. The rest of the passage explains why. Why is Jesus able to save you from your sins? First, the virgin birth. Matthew highlights the miraculous nature of Jesus' conception. Verse 18, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This was so supernatural and so miraculous that it left Joseph in a bit of a quandary. Verse 18 tells us that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Now betrothal in the first century was much more serious and binding than present day engagement betrothal was much more serious. It was the first step, almost like the first part of marriage where the woman would remain with her family. And then the second part, which resulted in the marriage was when the man would take the woman home with her. This betrothal was legally binding. Only a divorce could break it. And if there was infidelity during this stage of betrothal, it was considered adultery. Given this, what was Joseph to do? Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why did Joseph resolve to divorce her quietly? Well, two reasons are given. First, it says he was a just man. That means a righteous man. He couldn't in good conscience marry this woman, Mary, who he understood had been unfaithful to him and committed adultery. But why did he divorce her quietly? Well, it says he didn't want to put her to shame. He could have taken her to court. He could have gone to law court and and, and legally been divorced, but it would have put Mary, in a tremendous public scandal, shame, scorn. And so, out of his compassion and his love for her, he didn't want to shame her. So, he divorced her quietly, which was one way that people could get divorced in that day, is before two witnesses. Deuteronomy 5, Numbers 24, or Deuteronomy 24, Numbers 5 would allow someone to get divorced before two witnesses. So, that's what he did to do it quietly. But then, of course, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Do not fear, Joseph. Take Mary to be your wife. Why? Verses 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Mary was a virgin and yet she conceived a son in her womb. And and Matthew highlights this even more, the nature of this virgin birth when he says in verse 25, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. No union, no intercourse between Mary and Joseph until after Jesus was born. That's how important this virgin birth was. They say, why? What's the significance of the virgin birth? Why is it important? Why is it absolutely essential to Jesus saving you from your sins? Now, the doctrine of the virgin birth over the years has been ridiculed by many outside the church and even inside the church. Several years ago, one well known pastor said it really wouldn't have been a big deal if we find out that Jesus had an earthly father named Larry. And he went on to say it wouldn't be catastrophic to the Christian faith because Jesus is still the best possible way to live. I want to give you two very powerful reasons why the virgin birth is absolutely essential to your salvation. Absolutely essential. First, it means that that, that Jesus did not inherit the sin of Adam like you and I do. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now notice what this verse says. It says you are not born into the world a clean, sinless, a blank state. It says that you're born into the world inheriting the sin of Adam. Meaning you're born guilty. You're not born innocent. You're born guilty. In fact, David speaks of it in Psalm 51.5 when he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. But notice also Romans 5.12 says that because all men sinned. So while you're born into the world Sinful, then you actually begin to sin. In other words, everyone has original sin and actual sin. Think about it this way. Imagine you had a glass of clean water and you began to discolor it by putting drops of food coloring in it. We are not born into this world a clean glass of water. Then we begin to discolor by actually sinning. No, the scriptures teach we are born into this world a discolored glass of water. In fact, even before you come out of the womb, when you're conceived in the womb, you're a discolored glass of water. And then you begin to sin and add more discoloring, right? And pollution to this this glass of water. Hebrews 4.15 makes it clear that Jesus was made like us in every way except for sin. Now, when we talk about the sinlessness of Christ, we typically talk about it in that he what? He just never sinned. In the life he lived, he never sinned. That is true. But when we talk about the sinlessness of Christ, it is just as important for us to talk about the sinlessness of Christ and that he did not inherit the sin of Adam that Jesus was born into this world a clean glass of water because he did not inherit the sin of Adam. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not Joseph's seed, not Joseph's sinful polluted seed, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is not spotless, not just in the life he lived, but in original sin, if he's not spotless, not innocent, not pure and holy, then there is no salvation. He can't forgive you of your sins. if He's not pure and sinless. So the virgin birth means that Jesus was sinless. But second, the virgin birth is essential because it means that you are saved by grace. Let me explain why here, why this is true. The birth of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ was initiated by God. It was an act of God. It was not the result of human effort. It was not the result of Mary and Joseph coming together. It was not initiated by a human act. It was initiated supernaturally, miraculously by God. And so it is as the virgin birth is part of this entire topic of salvation. As the virgin birth was miraculous and initiated by God, so it is with your salvation. It was initiated by God. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, meaning you are trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation, that is not of your own doing. And that should cause us to say, hallelujah. It's not your effort that got you saved. It's not your, you cleaned up your act. You quit drinking, you quit smoking, you quit sinning. You showed God you were serious. That's not why you are saved. God initiated and supernaturally gave you a new heart to replace your old stony heart so that you could respond to him in salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus' birth was miraculous initiated by God in the same way that your salvation, which made you a new creation, was initiated by God and accomplished by God which means that salvation completely and thoroughly and fully belongs to God and not you. And you can rest in that grace of what he has accomplished, that he initiated. You ever been to a loud concert or maybe a sporting event where the the speakers are blaring and the person next to you tries to talk to you and you can't hear a word they're saying? right? You've got two voices speaking in that moment. You've got the blaring whatever it is out of the speakers, and you've got the person next to you. One is loud and dominant. One is quiet and faint. I think we can all agree that oftentimes sin and failure is the loud and dominant voice in our lives. Loudly and dominantly telling us of our shame and our guilt and our condemnation. And when that's true, the word of God is quiet and faint. And I would add of the doctrines of salvation that we can talk about, typically the virgin birth is quiet and faint when compared to the crucifixion and resurrection. But what I want you to see here is that we need to turn the volume up on the virgin birth because it speaks powerfully into your salvation and the assurance of your salvation. The virgin birth speaks loudly and it it speaks two powerful truths to you. It says that the record of Jesus Christ that is yours by faith is a sinless one. It's a perfect one. And the virgin birth loudly speaks to you that your salvation, which has made you a new creation, your new birth was initiated by God and an act of God alone. And there's great assurance in that. And of course, whatever God initiates he finishes. If you were the initiator of your salvation, you would be right to question, is this gonna get finished? I don't know. Depends how I'm living. If God initiates, he will finish. The work he started in you, he will carry carry to completion. Why is Jesus able to save you from your sins? First, we looked at the virgin birth, but second, the incarnation. We return to verse 23, which is the prophecy quoted from Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When a prophecy from the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's really helpful to understand the context in the Old Testament because context gives meaning. In Isaiah chapter seven, Ahaz is the the king of Judah. And he and the people of Judah are trembling in fear because they are being threatened by two nations that are threatening to attack. They're trembling, they're fearful, And God speaks to Ahaz and the people and says, listen, listen, don't fear. I need you to be at rest. Don't let your hearts grow faint. It's gonna be okay. And then God God goes on to tell Ahaz, these two nations that are attacking you or threatening to attack, their, their days are numbered. They're gonna go away. And then, in the midst of this crisis, and I want you right now, I want you to start thinking about a crisis or the crisis you find yourself in. Because God's people in Isaiah 7 found themselves in a crisis. And in that crisis, God gave Ahaz and the people a sign in Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the midst of this crisis, who would Ahaz trust? Would he embrace the sign God had given him? Or would he reject it? Well, sadly, he rejected it. He went on to make an alliance with Assyria to try to protect himself and the people of Judah from this evil that was coming. And he rejected the sign. He trusted in his own strength, his own strategy in the face of this crisis. In your moment of crisis, whatever it is, you are confronted with this same sign that Ahaz was confronted with. You're confronted with this same sign, which is Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what does this mean? What does the sign mean? That God is with us. In our culture, if you say to someone, I am with you, that can mean a number of different things. In fact, let me me try to illustrate this With, with football season kicking up and the Jaguars getting started. Let me try to illustrate it this way. If you say, I am with the Jaguars, that can mean a number of different things. It could mean I sit on my couch and watch them play and I cheer and I root for them and I support them. That's one version of I am with the Jags. Or you could say, no, no, no. I go to the stadium and I sit in a seat and I watch them play live and I yell and scream and I think they can actually hear me. My support is real. I am with the Jaguars in that way. Now we would all say that's probably, that is a step of further engagement or withness than sitting on your couch. Or I am with the Jazz could mean I'm a coach on the sideline and I'm giving instruction and guidance to these players who are out in the field. And we'd say that's another level of engagement or witness. Or I am with the Jazz could mean I've put on the helmet, the shoulder pads, I'm on the field sweating and taking the hits. I've actually become one of the Jaguar players and I'm with them in that way. And we would say that that's the ultimate level of engagement, right? Or withness. Now in our culture, in I would just say the generic spirituality of our culture, God with us I think most commonly means that God is sitting in the stadium of heaven, cheering for us and rooting us on in this hard game of life that we, we're in on this earth. And that's not what God with us means. God with us means that he has put on flesh, real human flesh, In the person of Jesus Christ, John chapter one, verse 14, in the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus put on flesh at his conception and birth and he will remain in a human body for eternity. That's what it means that God is with us. He's fully God and he's fully human. When Jesus walked this earth, he didn't have a hologram type of body that was different from yours. Nor did he have a superhero type of body that was different than yours. He was made exactly like you, except for sin, which means he, Jesus, felt betrayal like you have felt betrayal. It means that Jesus felt rejection like you have felt rejection. It means that Jesus cried real tears like you have cried. It means that he experienced extreme stress like you have experienced extreme stress he suffered like you have suffered he was falsely accu- accused like you have been falsely accused that's what it means that god is with us it's real and because of that hebrews 4:15 says that he is able to sympathize with your weaknesses That word sympathize in the Greek is sum patheo. Sum with, patheo to feel, to feel with. God in the person of Jesus Christ feels with you. And this is the sign that you are confronted with in every moment of crisis in your life. This is the sign that you're confronted with because this is the sign that answers every crisis you have and will ever face. Now let's talk about crisis for a second because there's different levels of it. When I was in probably young elementary school My family was taking its annual trip up to Pennsylvania to see my grandparents on my dad's side. And right before that trip, I got a brand new 18-wheeler toy truck. We arrive at my grandparents' house, and this truck had, you know, the trailer had a little plastic knob that would connect to the cab of the truck so you could wheel it around we get to my grandparents' house and my grandfather's sitting on the porch. And I got out of the car and I bounded up the steps. And I got up on that porch and I said, I said, Grandpa, Grandpa, look at this truck I got. And I got down on the ground and I connected the trailer to the the cab of the truck and and, and I was so excited about it that the, the plastic knob snapped off. And the trailer wouldn't attach to the truck cab anymore. I was devastated. And I remember crying for a long time. Okay, that's, that's young elementary school crisis. Now there's a whole nother level of crisis. You get diagnosed with terminal cancer or a disease. A loved one is shot and killed. You get caught in sin that is shameful and embarrassing, that throws your life and your family into chaos. And wherever the crisis falls on the spectrum, all crises have one common source. that is the crisis of sin and death that entered the world in Genesis chapter three. Every crisis you face flows out of that crisis. It's that crisis in Genesis three that explains why a toy, tractor, truck, trailer, plastic knob breaks off and throws a child into a fit of tears. And it's that crisis of sin and death in Genesis 3 that explains shootings and disease and horrific sin. And it's this crisis, sin and death, that Jesus confronted when he was birthed into this world and when he put on flesh. The doctrine of the incarnation of God putting on flesh is absolutely essential to Jesus being able to, to save you from your sins. Hebrews 2, uh, verses 14 to 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Abraham. In other words, Jesus could only represent humans if he really became a human. And if he didn't represent humans, then there is no salvation from sin. Or from death. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, famously has said this. That which he, Jesus, has not assumed, he has not healed. Let me say it again. That which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. If Jesus didn't become a real human being and remain a human being, then there's no salvation from sin and death. Hebrews 2.17. 7, 2, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In your moment of crisis, you're confronted with this sign. The virgin birth and Emmanuel, God with us. Maybe your crisis has arisen from some brokenness in the world or brokenness of your body. Maybe your crisis has arisen from someone sinning against you. Or maybe your crisis has arisen from your own sin. Or maybe it's some combination of all three. If God has already handled your greatest crisis, the crisis of sin and death that entered the world in Genesis 3, if he's already handled that, don't you think he is able and willing to handle your present crisis? And if he handled your greatest crisis, sin and death, without your help. Don't you think he is able to handle your present crisis without your help? Your greatest need in your current crisis is not an outcome. Your greatest need is the presence of Christ, God with you. When you are focused on an outcome, you're in danger of not living faithfully through the crisis. But when you are focused on the sign, Emmanuel, God with us, the presence of Christ, his withness, his nearness, his engagement. Then you will walk faithfully through the crisis and you will become a witness for Jesus to the world around you. Bible scholar N.T. Wright was asked what he would tell his children on his deathbed. In other words, what would you tell your children if you were on your deathbed? And I would just broaden this. What would you tell your children, your spouse, your family, your friends? What would you tell anybody in a crisis moment? Death being a, a A major crisis, but what would you tell someone in the middle of crisis? This is what N.T. Wright said. This is what I would tell my children on my deathbed. Look at Jesus. And then he went on to explain. The person who walks out of the pages of the gospels to meet us is just central and irreplaceable. He is always a surprise. We never have Jesus in our pockets. He is always coming at us from different angles. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as the central character. In your present crisis, Look at Jesus. He's good. He's beautiful. He's powerful. He can handle your crisis. Let's pray, Father. Every one of us to varying degrees is in the midst of crisis. That's just the reality of life in a broken world. Would you fix our eyes in the midst of our crises on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Would you get our eyes off an outcome and have our eyes fixed on Jesus? And would we know that Jesus is near, and that he sympathizes with us, that he feels with us. And Father, would you convince us in those moments of willful and conscious and ugly sin, when we're well aware that we just feel as though we've betrayed you, Would you fix our eyes not on our failure, not on our sin? Would you fix our eyes on Jesus? And enable our hearts to hear the most powerful words of I forgive you. And I will continue to forgive you. Because Father, you tell us that what you initiate, you finish. The work you've started in us, begun in us, you will carry to completion. May we worship now out of that posture because you're good and we believe you and we rest on your unchanging grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.